Olá, pessoal. Tudo bem? Welcome to the Brazil Crypto Report podcast, where we talk to the builders, entrepreneurs, and influencers from across the Brazil ecosystem. I'm your host, Aaron Stanley, and today I'm joined by Leo Schwartz, who is a reporter covering crypto, policy, and regulation at Fortune. And he's also the author of the excellent Proof of State newsletter, which you should read if you don't already. We're going to take a slightly belated look at Web Summit Rio, which took place the first week of May. Uh, I was not able to be there in person, unfortunately. Uh, Leo, on the other hand, was in attendance. He moderated a couple of sessions and he was able to mingle with some of the representatives from the local industry. And he also wrote a very nice recap article about his experience. So uh, I thought it would be nice to invite him onto the show. Uh, so he could tell us a bit more about uh, kind of what he learned. So with that, I'd like to welcome Leo to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, so why don't you give us uh, just a bit of background about yourself and kind of how you got into crypto just to get started here. Definitely. Uh, so I'm a reporter at Fortune. I'm covered crypto, mostly looking at policy and regulation. But as you know, it's a space that has everything in it from the fun financial crimes to hacks to just general technology. Um, and my interest in crypto came pretty untraditionally. Uh, I was a reporter at a place called Rest of World before this, which is a nonprofit newsroom that covers tech outside the U.S. So I was actually based in Mexico, mainly focused on Latin America. But as a Spanish speaker, I will say that Brazil was certainly a blind spot. Um, and you know, as you know, crypto is a very different story in Latin America as it is in other markets, and especially in the U.S., where I think it's less about speculation and more about actual use cases um, whether it's remittances or cross-border payments in general or hedges against inflation or anything in between. So I covered a lot about Mexico and Venezuela and Argentina. Uh, and when I got the invite to come to Web Summit Rio, I was really uh, eager to learn more about the ecosystem because I'd heard about this budding regulation that was happening in the country. And as a regulatory reporter in the U.S., you know, the story is basically that regulation is completely stalled. All the lawmakers are at an impasse. All the agencies hate each other. Uh, so whenever I get the opportunity to look at a market where it actually seems like regulation is progressing, it's always great. Yeah, it's a good point. It's, you know, covering regulation in the U.S. is it's kind of like Groundhog, Groundhog's Day, right? Where like every day just sort of feels exactly the same. You know, it's like another, you know, Bitcoin ETF rejection. Uh, you know, it's another SEC regulating by enforcement decision. It's another round of companies sort of threatening to leave the U.S. if they don't get what they want. And it's just kind of, you know, the same wheel keeps on turning for years and years and years, it seems. Um, but yeah, so what, what's happening in Brazil is actually quite refreshing in that, in that perspective. So we'd love to hear just a bit about like, how was Web Summit? What were you doing in your official capacity at Web Summit? Like what was, I know you did a couple of panels, um, but maybe just give us some more color about uh, but like your experience there. Yeah, definitely. So I, as a tech reporter, before, I'd heard about Web Summit a lot, but I'd never actually been able to go. Um, so it was very cool to be invited to this Web Summit, also in Rio. I'd never been to Brazil. Um, and I was invited to moderate a couple panels. One was on privacy and technology with Chelsea Manning, who's now working on NIM, which is like a privacy infrastructure crypto, crypto provider. And then the other was one that was more in my wheelhouse, which was basically the state of crypto regulation, but looking at Brazil with a lot of fantastic panelists, including uh, Marcelo from Hashdex and Jose from uh, Coinext. So I, I think before the panel, I got to learn a lot about basically the regulatory position in Brazil. I remember when I first, uh, you know, Hashdex has been on my radar for a while, uh, just because ETFs are such a big 
question in the U.S. So the fact that uh, you know Bitcoin ETF had been approved in Brazil definitely piqued my interest. So I'd spoken to him before. And I remember prepping for the panel in my first conversation with him where he was basically like, yeah, the leg legislature has passed a law. It seems like the president's going to sign it uh, and regulations going to be implemented. I was almost in shock <laughs> that something could be that far forward. I mean, I know there are some markets where that's the case, like Europe is finalizing Mika now. Obviously, you have you know the Bahamas who have implemented regulation, maybe not too successfully. Uh, you have uh, UAE that has different states of regulation, but for it to be in Latin America uh, and for it to be in this very different context than we're used to was really interesting. Um, so getting to actually come to Web Summit, uh, speak with the people in person. I went to Hashtown, which is the, I don't know if you've been there, but it's like the crypto co-working space slash Hashtex headquarters uh, in Leblon, uh, beautiful location. Did you get a uh, did you get a Bitcoin burger at the, the crypto <laughs> kitchen? You know, I, I I went for the happy hour that they hosted and they had lots of very delicious food. Also wild that I think it's a Michelin starred chef who started it, uh, which was surprising. A lot of the crypto themed restaurants in the US, I would say, are not <laughs> up to the same standard. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I had the first sort of impression when I when I went there the first time as well. I was like, this is actually much higher quality than I was, you know, than what I've been led to believe of, you know, or my, my traditional sort of view of crypto restaurants is generally like shady, like pizza place that accepts Bitcoin or something and not necessarily like a Michelin star, you know, fancy place. But um, yeah, so very cool. Also, it sounds like you really got the full sort of like Rio crypto experience Then you got the not just at the conference itself, but I got to do some of the side events and and whatnot. Maybe talk a bit more about um, just like who else from the ecosystem did you get a chance to, to talk with? I mean, obviously, Hashdex is kind of like the crown jewel. Um, I mean, full disclosure or full shameless plug, I guess, like everyone listening, you should take a listen to my most recent podcast with Bruno Hamos Gisos of, of Hashdex, uh, if you haven't listened to that already. Um, but like, what other interesting maybe projects or companies or people from uh, the Brazil ecosystem were you able to uh, chat with that you found uh, particularly interesting? So Parfine was another interesting one. I mean, I think the question for me is basically when you look at something like Hashdex or even Parfine, it, it can transcend the country itself or the, the borders, I guess, itself, where they're offering a service that can be offered in different markets. So I think my question with this really was, you know, even if Brazil can implement this regulation, does that actually mean that Brazil can compete as a global hub uh, and can attract global entrepreneurs or global customers? Obviously, another market in Latin America, El Salvador, has really positioned itself in that vein, saying, like, not only are we going to have Bitcoin as legal tender, but because of this freedom we're offering, we're going to attract companies from all over the world to come build in El Salvador. I don't think they've really been successful for a number of reasons. Obviously, you've seen a lot of tourism there, but I don't know if it's really attracting that many companies. Um, so I, I think with Brazil, the question is, will that be the case? And I think what I really learned from speaking with people, I mean, a lot of people at Hashtags and also Parfine, um, and I think some other like, you know, Sandra at Global Blockchain Council, who I know is very involved in Brazil. Uh, the question is basically, can Brazilian entrepreneurs build products that will be used globally as opposed to will it actually attract entrepreneurs from other countries who are going to come into Brazil and, and build, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, it's, is it, the question is like, is it going to be like a two-way street or like a two-lane bridge essentially where it's, you know, you have service providers and exchanges that are looking to enter into the market just because it's so big and it's presents such a big opportunity. 
but then what's the potential of kind of some of the homegrown talent to uh, potentially, you know, uh, be competitive in other markets. Uh, and this is, uh, this is, I mean, you've been covering Latin America for a while, right? So this, this applies to basically any industry, right? Like obviously kind of the, the history of import substitution, sort of, uh, you know, economic development philosophies has created kind of these local like sheltered industries that are not exactly competitive uh, elsewhere, <laughs> uh, just because, you know, they don't necessarily need to compete elsewhere. But then in Brazil, you have a few examples of obviously some things like, you know, kind of like Embraer and some of these and even uh, and, and you know, some of these other kind of you know companies that have thrived in, in kind of the import substitution mindset. But I mean, not to totally digress from, you know, the point at hand here, but I think this is an issue. This is an issue that always kind of comes up when you're talking about economic development in Latin America, where it's like, OK, how are we how are we like generating entrepreneurs and companies that are actually going to be competitive in the global marketplace and not just kind of like you know, I mean, like recolonizing with like, you know, you know, North American and European and, and Asian companies that are kind of uh, coming in for, you know, to in a, in a gold rush kind of kind of mentality, essentially seeing a new market to, to, to sort of uh, capitalize on. But like, I, I would love to actually, you know, kind of take I mean, since you're you're more of like, I, I feel like I'm kind of like the opposite of you or like I'm I'm a Brazilianist, but I don't really know anything about the rest of Latin America. And you're kind of sounds like you're kind of the opposite. Um, so we'd love to kind of just pick your brain on like, what are you seeing maybe like in the elsewhere in, in the Latin American region? Uh, you mentioned El Salvador earlier, but is there anything else in particular that you found kind of particularly interesting um, on the crypto front or on our, or either crypto generally or maybe more regulate regulation and policy more specifically? Yeah, definitely. And I'm going to your earlier point. I do think you see a lot of Latin American companies that compete in Latin America or expand in Latin America, like Rappi or Mercado Libre um, that don't necessarily expand outside of Latin America. And I do you know, I think a Brazil obviously has the opportunity to become the crypto hub within Latin America. I don't know if you would call that Mexico now. I mean, Argentina obviously has a hotbed of, of companies, um, but it seems like that's happening with Brazil, but also that they're producing companies that are now also going abroad, which is not as common for Latin American tech companies like Hashtags, which is offering its services in Europe too. Uh, so, you know, because crypto, I think is more borderless uh, it, it offers that opportunity. Um, and then, I mean, elsewhere in Latin America, I mean, Bitso, I really think is is the big player. And it, it's sort of fascinating to see, you know, Bitso, which has been competitive, especially in Mexico, I think, you know, in Argentina and other markets across Latin America has really expanded to Brazil and is challenging a lot of the Brazilian exchanges. Um, I know Daniel Vogel, who I believe is the CEO, he's one of the founders, was has moved to Brazil. Um, so it's surprising to me that they think they can compete there. And I think it's also indicative of the fact that they recognize that Brazil really is this burgeoning hub. I mean, when you talk about regulation, other markets, if you look at Mexico, obviously they passed their fintech law um, before AMLO came to power. I think there's questions as to how successfully it's been implemented. I know it's facilitated a lot of fintech development, but even so, there's a lot of red tape that I think has restricted the growth of fintech companies in crypto there, even though you do see players like Bitso. Um, Argentina, obviously, is another country where there's been a huge amount of crypto growth just because of the inflation problem there. Um, but their government has been cracking down. Um, I mean, you saw that Mercado Libre had passed, had implemented crypto buying tools on, a, I think it was on like right on Mercado Pago, like you could buy and hold Bitcoin. But I know Argentina is now cracking down on that and trying to limit the ability of companies to offer crypto tools. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. 
Venezuela is another interesting case where you've really seen crypto built into the economy in a lot of ways because of issues with their economy and hyperinflation. But it's also happening in this very gray market area uh, where it's certainly not facilitated by the law, um, but there, you know, it exists. I mean, know how to put it like they have an agency that manages crypto, um, but a lot of it is happening in a, in a very shady way, <laughs> obviously, in a way that doesn't really spur innovation. And then I think well, is, is El Salvador, which, you know, really looked to crypto as a way to, I think, change the narrative of the country. I actually I did reported a feature from there a couple of years ago and spent some time there. Um, but obviously, with the falling price of Bitcoin, I think that project has been hurt along with just the autocratic <laughs> nature of Bukele in general. Yeah, the El Salvador. I mean, I haven't actually been there myself, so it's one of these things where I've I've kind of reserved judgment on it until like I actually go there to see it for myself. But it's it's one of these things where like whoever you talk, if you talk to the Bitcoin maxis, like oh, it's the greatest thing ever. If you talk to, you know, sort of more sort of sensibly minded people, perhaps like yourself, they're kind of like, yeah, it's not really working out as they planned it would. Um, but I feel like it's one of these things where it's like you know it's going to be like you know it's going to be they're playing the long game, I guess. So I'm I'm kind of reserving job. I mean, it's a fascinating experiment and I like, I hope they can succeed with it, but I'm, yeah, I guess I have my skepticisms the same as, as you on that front. And on the Bitso example, that's, that's another really interesting one. Uh, I mean, I've had Daniel Vogel on the show a couple of times actually, and his story of kind of identifying that they need to, they really need to just go all in on the Brazil market uh, from scratch. Basically they were, they didn't, you know, go, they didn't acquire anybody or anything. They just kind of came in greenfield and just started building uh, and they've been able to generate some 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 decent traction. I mean, they're definitely one of the the most used exchanges, and they've they've been pretty. Uh, they're actually very uh, um, hands on involved in the in the passage of the the crypto law that passed back in December. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was basically like them. It was basically like Bitso and kind of Mercado Bitcoin, and then uh, you know they, there's an association basically of some of maybe like fifteen twenty other companies, but it was really kind of Mercado Bitcoin and Bitso that were that were driving that. Um, and, and Bitso's kind of employed that in other countries as well. They've been very aggressive, uh, or maybe aggressive isn't like the right word for it, but they've been very like proactive on, on, on kind of getting ahead of the regulatory curve in some of these countries. Um, and maybe I guess there's another question here. Um, you know, I, I guess just kind of what you kind of going back to what we were talking about before about, you know, basically exporting talent and, and, and companies from the region that can be competitive globally. Um, I mean, from what you know of, uh, you know, Parfine and like hashtags and some of these others that you met with, um, just kind of curious as to your thoughts on how viable do you think these companies are, are going to be kind of in the global landscape? I know, I mean, obviously hashtags, it's like, they've got, you know, five, six, seven, I'm not even sure how many ETFs they have up and running now, but if you compare it to like something like grayscale, it's so like, okay, that's still kind of a drop in the bucket compared to some of the North American asset managers and whatnot. But, and then um, Parfine, uh, they're, they're doing some very impressive uh, things on the infrastructure front. Uh, they've got kind of a full sort of end to end solution. Um, you know, they've got clients outside, you know, in North America, Europe. Um, but I guess we'd be kind of curious as to like what you know about these companies or, and maybe others, uh, you know, how viable do you think, like how, how, you know, how they're kind of the crown jewels of the Brazil market, but how, how well will these translate into, you know, other markets ultimately? Yeah. Well, I mean, hashtags is the really interesting one because you bring up grayscale and 
you know, Grayscale is currently embroiled in this legal fight with the SEC. And I know it's a case I've been following and covering pretty closely. And I know there's a lot of optimism among the crypto crowd in the U.S. that Grayscale will uh, will succeed in the case and then basically be able to offer this Bitcoin spot ETF, which will dramatically change the market. But it, it seems really unlikely that that's going to actually happen, because even if they win this case, then the SEC would basically have to agree, still agree to implement the ETF or approve the ETF. Um, and it seems like it could be that they'll just reject the other one, which is the futures ETF that they've basically been forced to approve. This is really going down a, a legal rabbit hole that I'll, I'll try to live it. But I think the upshot here is that it seems like Grayscale's future is pretty existentially threatened. Uh, whereas Hashdex has been able to find markets like Brazil and like, I mean, in Europe, I'm pretty sure it's Switzerland. I don't know if they'll be able to expand with Mika now. Um, but basically, they have a viable product. And as I think they've identified, there is a lot of appetite among both institutional and retail investors for this safer exposure to crypto. Um, so, I mean, it does seem like with the expertise they have, they would be able to compete with a grayscale on the global scale or by being able to identify countries where they can operate. Um, so it really does seem like Hashtex has been able to transcend Brazilian borders to become a more global company. And, you know, I think the question with everything is basically it's it's really unclear at this point how regulation is going to proceed in any given region. So so much will depend on how regulation proceeds both in the U.S. and European markets, across Africa, across Asia. Uh, it's it's really anybody's guess. And that's why I think they probably invest so much money in their uh, regulatory experts you know. And then I think I think the interesting thing with 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 Hashdex in particular is that you know they've and I was chatting about this actually with with uh, on my most recent podcast with with Bruno from Hashdex we we're chatting about this. I mean in the U.S. you've just heard this debate endlessly since like 2013 when the Winklevoss twins first tried to launch their own Bitcoin ETF and they kept getting rejected. And there's always this debate from kind of the, the Bitcoin crowd. It's like, well, ETFs are a terrible idea because it's just going to bring in all this kind of like financialization and rehypothecation and and, and and like and it's like if you want to own bitcoin just buy it in self-custody like you don't need to buy any you know a share of an etf and and there you know this ad this debate was kind of had like ad nauseum back and forth for you know 10 years basically up until now and there's been no no one's been able there's there's no etf so there's no way to prove anyone right or wrong right so the debate kind of just keeps on going with with the hashdex etfs um i mean they've got a bitcoin etf but they've also got a number of other etfs that are uh, kind of other baskets of of other assets, and I think they've they've proven that you can really like it, having these ETFs, these products does really expand the market, right? So like there are uh, there is a class of people and institutions that are interested in getting exposure to Bitcoin, but they don't want to like buy it and hold it themselves, right? I, I found that particularly interesting about their example, and I think that's something that um, you know people tend to like. I mean, most people don't even have any idea that there's like 12 different crypto ETFs trading on the publicly traded on the stock exchange here in Brazil. But like, you know, I think that's one of the interesting things that's happening here is we've, it's really just proven that these types of products do actually expand the market. Um, and I mean, I think ultimately will be, you know, sort of good for the market and, and prices and whatnot, if you're, if you're able to bring in these, these new customers, but I, I mean, maybe um, just kind of thinking here on going back to the regulation side here, um, you mentioned you kind of hinted at this in your your you know your introduction where you're mentioning that like look like regulation is generally like in large countries around the world like regulation on this stuff uh, does not move very quickly. Uh, I think places like Bahamas or Bermuda or 
you know, kind of the places you would expect to be the fast, the first movers and, you know, kind of the early adopters of this have, have really kind of, you know, they've, they've all, you know, got their own things in place. Uh, but Brazil is a bit of an anomaly in the sense that it's, it's you know, the seventh largest, you know, more or less like seventh largest economy in the world, uh, 200 million people. It's a G20 country. There's not a whole lot of other like sort of commonalities here uh, with other G20 countries, I guess, as far as implementing this. I mean, have you seen any other? I mean, I know we have MICA in Europe or MICA, however you pronounce it, uh, which has just kind of gone through, um, which I'm. I'm not super well versed on. So, um, but if you want to talk a bit about maybe if there's some commonalities between Mika or Mika and, and what's happening in Brazil, or if there's other kind of large economies that you maybe have seen kind of some similar momentum building, I mean, that might be kind of helpful context here. Yeah. I think there are different markets where you're basically seeing the governments grapple with how a licensing regime would work or how guardrails could be implemented. And you have places like Abu Dhabi and Dubai, which are starting to have those licensing authorities Singapore, Hong Kong is vying to become a hub in those ways. Um, but as you mentioned, to have as large an economy as Brazil and to have this process really democratically implemented, uh, in, in my estimation, doesn't really have any parallels except for maybe with the European Union. Um, so it is pretty groundbreaking in that regard. And I do think has been flying pretty under the radar, which, which is surprising. Uh, then again, I think it goes back to that point of you know, will this turn Brazil into a regional hub or, or into a global hub? Because it always comes back to, you know, finance is a global story. But if you're someone with a lot of money to park somewhere, uh, I don't know if the regulatory situation will mean that basically you can find a custody provider in Brazil or if you'll see basically the rise of companies like I think like Parfine, which are basically offering more like infrastructure and custody as a, as a service where because those companies can now thrive in Brazil, maybe then they could expand more globally. Um, but in terms of where where you're seeing regulation emerge to that degree, I think it's still really early innings across the world. And, and Brazil is certainly a, 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 a leader in that space. And maybe I'd like to, maybe uh, since we're, we're both gringos here who have an interest in Latin America, but um, I would love I mean, I have my own personal opinions on this question, but like would love to kind of get your thoughts on like, why is it that like what what happens in this region, it kind of just it always flies under the radar of of kind of, you know, the like the Western, you know, developed world or whatnot. Like, why is it that uh, I mean, aside from El Salvador, that's definitely not flying under the radar. But like uh, what's happening in, you know, uh, even what's happening in Argentina now, I mean, you've got I mean, the, the like the, the price of Bitcoin in Argentina now is like it's like twice, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, hundred percent higher what it is uh, in spot markets in the U S uh, because there's just so much you know demand for it there. Um, but just like your thoughts on, you know, somebody who's kind of pretty familiar with the region, like, like, why is it that this, it, it, everything just kind of flies under the radar here? Like, what does it take to sort of <laughs> get, get people's attention? It's a great question. <laughs> it's something I definitely <laughs> grappled with a lot when I was covering Latin America for, you know, three or four years. I would like to say a lot of it comes to laziness from readers, but I think a lot of it's also on journalists to try and show why it's relevant. And again, you know, if for better or for worse, a lot of what happens in Latin America is sort of siloed within Latin America, except for the stories that do always break through to the U.S., which are usually, unfortunately, about immigration. Uh, when you're looking at that economic story, um, like you said before, it's really often a one-way story of a lot of the companies from the U.S. going to Latin America and usually less so in the other direction um, if you're looking at it from a business story. 
So I don't know. I mean, this is why I was interested in covering crypto um, when I was more focused on tech in Latin America, because I do think it's such a different story. And I think there's a lot that the U.S. market can learn from what's happening in Latin America, both in terms of, you know, the potential of crypto for cross-border payments um, and as a hedge against inflation in these sort of wacky uh, implementations like El Salvador, which I do think got <laughs> a ton of attention, but mainly because Bukele is a particularly good salesman. Um, and yeah, I mean, with this story, I, I do think it, it makes a little sense why Brazil is not necessarily breaking through because, you know, as I, as I keep repeating through this, it's still a question of whether it will be able to compete as a global hub or actually produce products that will be relevant to larger markets like the U.S. or Europe or Asia. Um, I think some of that's probably a language barrier. I think some of it's because, you know, the Brazilian currency is not international currency, as I, as I mentioned in the piece. Um, maybe other restrictions that you're probably more familiar with in terms of why those companies can't necessarily break through outside of Latin America. Um, but again, with crypto, I think, you know, my, my main angle or frame into it is still, you know, crypto hasn't really found that use case that breaks through to the mainstream. That's why ETFs are interesting, I think, because I don't think the average person wants to go on, you know, some sort of sketchy exchange and open an account and buy some Bitcoin. It'd be much easier to just buy it right through your normal investing account. So if an ETF is readily available, then maybe that's one use case. Uh, but these other ones that are happening in Latin America are much clearer than anything that you're seeing in the U.S., especially with cross-border payments, remittances, hedges against inflation, et cetera. So I do think those are the learnings that can break through. And, you know, if Brazil can manage to implement this regulation and you see a lot of innovation flourish, then I, I do think it'll become a bigger story outside of Brazil. Yeah, it's a really good point you made about the ETFs where it's it's there's really not any pro like that's like the only real product that an average sort of consumer or investor could actually could could use, right? Or could it get exposure to crypto or utilize crypto in some fashion? Because uh, thing it's like, you know, we've been on this endless quest for sort of, you know, improved UX and product market fit and all these things. Uh, but we end up in, I mean, even like we're, as we're recording this, I mean, we just had this whole kind of ledger update debacle yesterday, right? Where everyone's like, oh, don't keep your Bitcoin on exchanges. You got to self-custody it. So it's like, okay, I bought a ledger and then <laughs> to self-custody it. Now you're telling me that I can't use the ledger because you know, it's like, wait a minute, what am I supposed to do? So yeah, it's definitely not really ready for prime time at this point. But but the, the use cases are, um, you know, in Latin America, as you mentioned, are, are like, like the value proposition is much more obvious, right? And you even see this in some of the kind of the chain analysis, you know, uh, the sort of state of crypto, global crypto report or mm -hmm. adoption index that they do where you look at like Venezuela and it's basically all the all the crypto uh, or they've kind of identified with the majority of the crypto transactions there as just being peer to peer, right? Like it, whereas in a place like Brazil where there's already pretty well-functioning payment systems, probably the best in the world actually, instant payment systems, um, you don't really need to pay for stuff in Bitcoin, right? Like you can use picks or you can use, uh, you know, so Bitcoin is much more of like an investment vehicle uh, or an inflation head or, or just, you know, a speculative asset, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, but maybe one last question for you here while, while I have you. Um, and this is also, this will be like a little bit long winded, but I'll, I'll bring it back home here. But, but basically, you know, ever since, as long as I've been in crypto, I mean, I've kind of been in and out of crypto since like, you know, 2013, you know, give or take, if, I mean, it took a few years off during the, the, the Mount Gox era when it looked like it was dead. But, but basically ever since that time, like there's always been this, this sort of implicit or explicit threat by the industry in the U S 
uh, where they're, they're basically saying like, we need, you know, better regulations or we're just going to go overseas. Right. Uh, so you had that, you know, even in like 2013, 14, when it came to things like money transmission licensing, which, you know, granted, I fully understand the pain points of like having to go, you know, why you'd have to, you know, why would you wouldn't want to have to go to every single, you know, all 50 states to apply for a money transmission license, which just seems like a ridiculous policy and totally inefficient. Um, so I totally understand why people wouldn't want that. And then, you know, 2017 comes, we have the ICO boom and, uh, you know, we start getting some crackdowns from the SEC on, you know, basically, you know, the, the whole question of like, is this thing a security or a commodity or something else? Um, and, you know, companies are saying like, okay, we can't, you know, if you're not going to let us sort of issue coins and, you know, to retail investors with freely, then we're going to just, you know, we're just going to take off and go somewhere else where we can do that. Right. And then now it's like, you're, you know, it's kind of the same whole, the same conversation just keeps repeating, repeating and repeating of companies basically threatening to leave the U S and now you have like Coinbase and Gemini, they're actually doing that. Like they've just, they've actually set up like offshore, you know, uh, uh, derivatives exchanges in Bermuda. And there's, you know, there's gonna be a, there's a whole Coinbase lawsuit in the works now. And then, so, so I guess the, the question is like, okay, like if it is, is this a real, is this real this time? Like, will they actually leave or is this just like negotiating leverage? And if they do leave, where are they going to go? Right. Um, obvious destinations are going to be like, you know, places like Japan or Asia or Hong Kong, or, you know, obviously Europe now, things are kind of uh, getting a bit more clear there. Uh, but then the other, the other, you know, tail end of that question would be, um, you know, how viable would a place like, uh, like Brazil or you know potentially other places in Latin America, if they if they kind of follow suit with, uh, you know they've kind of follow in Brazil's footsteps, how viable uh, are these locations uh, for companies that are, are kind of looking to sort of um, risk manage, I guess, uh, away from the U.S. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I, it does seem like a lot of it's a negotiating tactic, or not even that. I mean, I've spoken with. You know, I covered the Gemini launch, um, their offshore derivatives exchange, and I spoke with the Winklevoss twins about it. And I've spoken with Coinbase and Circle is another one. They're they're moving more to Europe. And I think when you speak with all of them, they say basically, you know, we, we're not planning on leaving the U.S. It's more that they're looking globally, which I think makes sense anyway. You know, so much of crypto is a global story and a lot of their customer base is going to have to be global for them to survive. Um, in terms of the viability of the U.S., I mean, at the end of the day, it still is the economic powerhouse. And I don't think it makes a lot of sense for companies to really completely pull up their roots and move. And I do think a lot of regulation is cyclical. And who knows what we're going to see if there's another administration, if Gensler is not leading the SEC anymore. You know, everything seems very dramatic in a one to two year spurt. But like you said, it's going to be over a time horizon that these things really develop. Um, and you know, then if, if you are seeing either smaller companies or companies that are just starting, um, spring up around the world, it, it, it's a great question that I don't really have a good answer for where that's going to happen. Uh, it, it would be fascinating if you see a place like Brazil emerge as a hub, especially if they can build companies that aren't just serving Latin America. Um, but right now it really seems like where a lot of the money at least is moving is, places in the UAE. seems like a lot of development is happening uh, in East Asia, Southeast Asia, where there is more clear regulation. Um, and Europe, different places in Europe. I mean, I know Switzerland has become a big hub. The UK is vying for this. 
Um, but at the end of the day, I think the U.S. is still the number one in that market. And we're going to see that barring any incredibly significant regulatory crackdowns here. Yeah, I think that's a fair summation, right? The U.S. is just so massive that you can't uh, you can't like abandon it. Right. Um, but at the same time, it's not, uh, you know, how viable is it to, to have end up having these kind of like sheltered U.S. entities like your like your Binance and your Binance U.S. So your you know, FTX and FTX U.S., obviously, neither of which exist anymore. But uh, well, they might they might be they might come back. They might be yeah. you know, Frankenstein, Frankenstein, FTX, uh, Sans, Sam Bankman Fried. Um, but anyway, but yeah, this, it's a great point. Like it, it, it's it's. You know, it's probably too still too early, a little too early to tell to, to see where 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 all the activity ends up. Uh, but you have a lot of pretty serious competitors vying for some of that activity right now. And then, assuming you know, in two years Gensler's gone and there's like a new administration, things might you know things in the U.S. might 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 clean up a little bit. Um, but we're it's still a little you know that in, in crypto years that's like 20 years from now, right? So it's yeah. like you know it's it's like trying to predict it's like trying to predict like what temperature will the world be in you know 2050 or something, right? It's like it's kind of impossible or you know it's not easy to do. So um well anyway Leo thanks for coming on the show. Um maybe I'll give you the last word and um maybe uh maybe just give listeners like if they want to get in touch with you like what's the best way to to get in, uh, you know, to get in touch and maybe what, what would you be interested in, in, in hearing from people about? Yeah, definitely. I'd love to hear more about projects that are emerging in Brazil, especially ones that are looking beyond the Brazilian market. Uh, I am very eager to continue following the passage of the law and what happens next. I think June, it seems like is the next step for that. So if there's any policy experts there in Brazil, or if you have any governmental listeners, please get in touch. Uh, Twitter is usually the best way. I'm at Leo M. Schwartz as long as the platform survives uh happy <laughs> my email is on the uh my my profile page at fortune uh what, what was the other question i don't know i think something to leave with i mean you know i came obviously i'm at fortune now and i'm mainly covering the u.s but i really came to crypto as it as a global story and i think whenever we can shed light on markets that aren't often looked at by you know, Fortune or Financial Times or Wall Street Journal or Coindesk, it's great. I will say Coindesk does some of the best global coverage I've read. So I really respect them for that uh, and hope to just keep learning about what's happening in Brazil. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, thanks everyone for watching and we will see you next time. Thanks so much, Aaron. Obrigado, everyone. And thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the Brazil Crypto Report newsletter on Substack if you haven't already. And please do give the show a five-star rating on your podcast app if you enjoyed this content. We'll be back soon with another great guest.